welcome to this, the seventh in our podcast series, which we have called SMB Redress, where we take a look at an important topic in the area of business to business dispute and hopefully um, help you and provide some clarity. Uh, today, we're going to be uh, pondering privilege. I am Catherine Penny, a partner in Stevens and Bolton's dispute resolution team. And I'm Katie Phillipson, a managing associate in the team. So as I say, today we're going to be pondering and discussing privilege. And Katie, as an introduction, um, we hear the term privilege used uh, a lot in a number of different contexts. And perhaps most people will be familiar with it in terms of parliamentary privilege, certainly in the UK anyway, uh, as that grants immunity to our members of parliament in the House of Commons, uh, allowing them to raise controversial or sensitive issues without any fear of any civil or criminal sanctions. Before we move into the real detail of privilege, could you summarise for us what we as disputes lawyers mean, mean by the term privilege? In a sense, privilege, as disputes lawyers refer to it, has similarities to a parliamentary privilege. When lawyers talk about privilege, we mean that documents can be created that are protected from being disclosed to the other party. This is obviously important in a disputes context as it ensures that if privilege is properly applied, a party can discuss and prepare its case without the risk of those communications being seen by anyone else. And of course, a, a slight um, addition here around the background to this is that under the UK system, um, there is a, uh, a regime of disclosing all your documents, whether they're good or bad, as long as they're, they're relevant to your case, depending on which disclosure regime you're uh, following in the court rules. Um, so that's the starting point. And so the, the way in which you can limit those disclosures uh, are interesting and relevant for the parties. Moving back then to, to the privilege aspect of it, how, how is privilege actually applied? So privilege can be broken down into a number of subcategories. Um, we'll touch on three of them today. Legal advice, litigation, and without prejudice privilege. The one that's most familiar is the one that we probably hear about in US courtroom style dramas as the attorney-client privilege, or as we in the UK call it, this is legal advice privilege. You can think of this type of privilege as being a bit like going to see a doctor. Everything that you discuss with a doctor and patient in the surgery is confidential. The same goes for these privileged discussions with your lawyer, including written exchanges. Those discussions are also privileged. A client needs to be allowed to be full and frank in the way it seeks legal advice from its lawyers and in the advice received without being fearful that those exchanges will have to be produced later in the litigation. But it's not completely straightforward, is it? Is not every communication between a lawyer and a client will attract privilege. Could you run us through the requirements um, that must be in place if privilege is to be properly asserted over certain documents? Of course. So for legal advice privilege, the requirements may be obvious, but they, they're worth covering in full. So the first one is that the document must be confidential. So the advice requested or given can't be in the public domain and the parties obviously wouldn't want it to be. Secondly, it must be a communication that's taken place between the lawyer and the client. The lawyer being anyone in the legal profession, including in-house lawyers, and the client being the individual or group of individuals tasked with instructing the lawyer and obtaining the advice. 
Thirdly, the dominant purpose of the document must be the requesting or the giving of that legal advice. So an email seeking legal advice would be protected by privilege, but an attachment that was created before the need for legal advice arose would not be privileged. Thank you. That's very thorough. So uh, coming out of that, a common mistake we see with uh, legal advice privilege is um, the idea that just CCing your lawyer on an email won't make your email privileged. You have to be seeking or receiving um, legal advice. So if we can move on now from legal advice privilege and the communications between lawyers and clients generally, um, there's another category of privilege, isn't there, that's broader than this. And this uh, will apply where there is already or there is likely to be a dispute afoot. Yes, this, this category is called litigation privilege. As you say, this is broader than just legal advice privilege as it applies to a wider range of people. Fundamentally, it works on the same principle that a party should be able to prepare its case in litigation without fearing that the documents created as part of that process will be provided to its opponent. To properly claim litigation privilege over documents, the overarching requirement is that the document has been created for the sole or dominant purpose of litigation that is pending, already underway, or that there is a real likelihood of litigation. And it's an important feature of litigation privilege, isn't it, that it applies not just to documents between the lawyer and the client, but also documents created between the lawyer or the client and third parties, uh, provided that the purpose of litigation criteria that you just mentioned has been met. That's right. So, for example, if a lawyer communicates with a potential factual expert witness in the litigation, or a third party, perhaps, who's going to fund the litigation, those communications will all be covered by litigation privilege, as will any documents created as a result of those communications. And, of course, the requirement of confidentiality also applies. So it has to be confidential, whatever it is that you're creating. And um, it's also worth mentioning here that we've been talking about documents created for the purpose of litigation, but it is a little wider than that. It applies to any adversarial proceedings, so employment tribunals and arbitrations in, in certain scenarios will, um, will be able to uh, benefit from litigation privilege. Yes, that's correct. However, where things become a little bit more tricky is whether or not litigation privilege can apply to processes that are more inquisitorial in nature than adversarial. For example, in FCA or HMRC investigations, the law's not quite so straightforward on these points. So if this is an issue for any of our listeners, they ought to perhaps speak to us. We touch on this again later on. Um, thanks, Casey. So we've covered off two main categories of privilege there, uh, and they're the ones we come across most frequently or talk about most when we're talking about privilege, but there are others, and, and we thought it would be worth mentioning one other, which is without prejudice privilege. Could you run us through that? Yes. So this is often referred to by lawyers as without prejudice. But it is a type of privilege, as going back to first principles, it's a way of creating documents whose disclosure is restricted. The basic rule here is that if a party has a genuine intention to try and resolve a dispute, then it can communicate with its opponent in a way that is cloaked in without prejudice privilege, without risking that communication ever finding its way to a court or tribunal or any other party. Thank you. And so um, taking a step back again, um, once a document is privileged, does it stay privileged forever, Katie? In theory, yes. However, privilege can be lost. 
If a document loses its confidentiality, perhaps by being referred to in a witness statement, it will lose its privileged status. This is a, a deliberate loss of privilege. An inadvertent loss might also occur. This might be where a document is disseminated too widely within a business so that it loses its confidentiality, which gives rise to an increased risk of deemed waiver of privilege. It is, of course, possible to share documents without losing privilege by using an appropriately worded information sharing agreement. The agreement needs to be clear and made in advance of making the disclosure. And um, are there any exceptions to privilege where you can't claim privilege even if you've met all these other criteria? Yes, there is an exception to privilege, and this is known as the iniquity exception. You can't claim privilege in relation to assistance with a crime, fraud or equivalent underhand conduct, which is in breach of a duty of good faith or contrary to public policy or the interests of justice. These documents would simply be disclosable and cannot attract privilege in the first place. Thank you. Uh, it feels like we've covered a fair bit of ground um, already today, but I wondered if it might be worth us using the last couple of minutes for some quick fire privilege questions uh, with me asking the questions, obviously, and you giving us the answers. Is that all right sure. with you? Absolutely. Let's give it a go. So a common situation, a business director sends an email to a colleague commenting on a major supply problem with a customer. And in that email, he volunteers that the business has clearly screwed up and breached its contract. Um, is there a chance that that communication could be seen in any future litigation? Quite probably. There's no legal advice privilege as there's no request for legal advice, no lawyer, no litigation is underway, and nor, I'd say, is litigation a real likelihood at that stage. So it's hard to see that litigation privilege applies. People should be wary of committing these types of content comments to email or any other written form, as it can be quite damaging. Okay, so what if the business director sends the same email to another director, but this time he copies in the business's in-house lawyer? Would that help? There's still a significant risk of future disclosure, as there's been no request for legal advice from that in-house lawyer. Simply copying in an in-house lawyer or even an external lawyer for that case is simply not enough to enable the assertion of legal advice privilege. Okay, what if he sent the same email, but he wrote confidential and without prejudice in the subject line? Would that work? No, unfortunately not. <laughs> we see this quite a bit when we look through documents. Simply writing without prejudice doesn't actually make a document privileged. What's important is whether a document is a genuine attempt to settle a dispute. If so, it will be protected by privilege. But if it isn't, then I'm afraid it just won't be protected. Okay, so moving on from this business director saying they've obviously been in breach. What if, um, what if I send an email to my opponent um, making an offer to settle an outstanding dispute, uh, but I haven't written without prejudice anywhere on it? Is it still going to be protected by without prejudice privilege down the line? Don't worry, in this case, it's highly likely to be privileged. As the email is a genuine attempt to settle a the dispute, it will be privileged. Again, what's important is what the actual words of the document are saying and conveying. It's good practice to mark correspondence without prejudice, though, as it makes it clear to everyone that privilege is being asserted. Equally, if you intend to make an open offer, as lawyers sometimes do, that can be referred to later, then you should make that clear. So another scenario, what if there's been a major incident at work and the company wants to undertake a fact-finding investigation 
to figure out what went wrong and whether the company is at fault. If any wrongdoing is uncovered in that investigation, could those documents created as part of the investigative process be disclosed in any future dispute? This can be tricky and the answer depends on the circumstances surrounding the incident. Generally speaking, documents created as part of a purely internal investigation are unlikely to be protected by privilege unless there's a real likelihood of litigation ensuing. For example, if the investigation is straight after the event, that likelihood is more remote. If an investigation must be conducted, we'd recommend having an internal or external lawyer lead the investigation and having a defined and limited group of individuals tasked with the investigation and instructing the lawyer to prepare a written final report, which should include legal advice and factual content. In this way, the business has created a construct where privilege can apply. Thank you, Katie. And I think even if you do that, there's no guarantee that it would be privileged anyway. The courts are quite um, hot on this topic, particularly at the moment. So thank you for listening, everybody. Thank you, Casey, for your um, contributions. We've tried to cover off privilege at a fairly high level, and inevitably there are a lot more complexities and nuances to it than we can address here. So if any listeners have any concerns or queries about privilege, then do get in touch. Other than that, uh, just leaves for me to say thank you for listening and we hope you found it useful.